We're recording this at 8.30 in the evening on March 29th, 2021. So by the time you hear this, Calgary's chances of making the playoffs will be down to 1%, which means they're just one smart deadline move away from missing by only one point. Welcome to the Battle of Alberta podcast, the hockey show that does feel bad for Sabres fans, but not enough to not crack jokes about it. I am the Oilers fan, Stuart Jones, and with me is our Flames fan, Darren Plett. How's it going, Darren? Hi, Stu. It's nice to know that as low as the Flames can go, it can't even remotely touch how bad the Sabres are right now. Yes, even in the Oilers' darkest days, the Sabres were down there with us, so I can uh, I can relate to that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sabres. Thank you on behalf of all other 30 teams. Yep. Uh, in fact, I think I saw an article that ranked uh, the 32 teams, including Seattle, <laughs> and uh, Buffalo ranked lower than them at this point, so... I believe that was actually in a Buffalo newspaper. So that just goes to show you how great things are going over there. (laughs) That's right. It was indeed. Oh, man. (laughs) Anyways, now I guess we have to talk about our teams, despite, uh, you know, talking about Buffalo is so much more fun. So we usually start with our scorecard uh, that tells us how well we predicted, you know, the past month's worth of games. Uh, there's a bit of a disclaimer here. Apparently I screwed up in not only predicting the results of the games, but in counting the number of games. (laughs) So, uh, we haven't actually listened to the last two episodes, but we're fairly certain based on our notes that we got that wrong. We thought the, well, we, I keep blaming you, but you just went along with it. I had the, the Oilers had 16 games. And uh, they've, again, I've like counted this out multiple times and it uh, looks like they actually had 14 in the month of March. I'm just not entirely sure how we did that because we both have to count the games and come up with a numerical record that adds up to the total number of games. So somehow both of us just completely whiffed on that one. And I'm not entirely sure how that happens, but it is pretty funny. Yeah, so anyways, of the 14 games, now, the other thing about this is it makes us look even like we were super optimistic about the Oilers chances in March. And now with the fewer games, we looked even more ridiculously optimistic. So (laughs) I think we could just pretty much wash this month away for our Oilers predictions because we were way off regardless. Uh, I had that they were going to win 11 out of 16, which is very optimistic. You had they were going to win 10 out of 16 out of the actual, well, 13 <laughs> that they've played so far. So they've this includes tonight's game as of recording, but not, uh, I believe it's tomorrow's game. They are 8-4-1 and one out of the 13 games that they've played so far in March. So definitely a really good record. Maybe if we do some sort of mathematical formula that I don't know and like whatever 11 and 10 would be out of, you know, 14, yeah, some sort of fraction. Yeah, that that's like, like James Neal's points. You just prorate yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. Maybe if we did that, let's just pretend. Yeah, we totally did that. And we were really good. We were really close <laughs> to getting this right. So anyways, like, they did. I well. feel like I was very on track with 10 wins, to be honest, if if we were if we were to prorate it, yeah. I think, you know, I'll take it. Hey, if you want to do the math, you might be able to prove that, but I'm not going <laughs> to. No, thank you. I can uh, I can just accept how great I sound without doing the math. So none Fair of the enough. effort and all the celebration. So the Flames, I believe we got the number right. So that's a (laughs) more accurate portrayal of what we tried to predict, which makes our uh, results even worse. Um, Actually, not too, too bad. So they did have 16 games in March. Again, they still have, I believe, two left, including tonight. Uh, So we're still not quite at a full uh, amount here. But out of those 16 games, I predicted they would win nine. You predicted they would win seven. And both those predictions were before the coaching change. So we all we already talked about that last episode, how that might throw a wrench in things. If only we'd have known. 
if only we'd have known that it didn't really <laughs> exactly <laughs> because currently neither of us are correct they are six seven and one for the month uh so you know maybe if they win tonight and not the next one you'll be right and if they win both of them i'll still be wrong <laughs> <laughs> finally my uh my sadness and pessimism around the team flipped drastically from what I assume was a very optimistic week, uh, two weeks before that. Uh, you know, I went drastically pessimistic and it seems to have paid off. I should just stick with that strategy for the Flames, I assume. Apparently so. So also in the month of March, we had three Battle of Alberta games. Oh, um, yeah. I predicted that, well, actually, we both predicted that the Oilers would win two out of three of them, and we were both correct. Again, we had the order wrong, but I don't know how good we could possibly be at knowing. Um, I should say, I had the order wrong. You had the order right. It was Oilers, Flames, Oilers. Mm -hmm. Yes, so the Oilers won the first one three to two, and I believe we would have talked about that one on our last episode, so we don't need to go into much more detail there. But then more recently, uh, the Flames won four to three. And then the couple nights later, the Oilers won seven to three against the Flames. So I, I went off the theory. You don't really see that many back to back um, sweeps this year. Mm -hmm. uh, like a lot of series are split and especially the back to back seem to be split quite often. So. That was just my total gut feeling. Zero math or statistics went into that, obviously, as we've proven on this show time and time again. So, yeah, thank you to my gut. I got that totally correct with hardly even thinking about it. Yeah, again, I'm going to blame Sutter for this because I was making those predictions totally on a different coach, different system. <laughs> I was seeing them. They were more like the Senators who the Oilers have, cannot lose to. That was what I was hoping for, I guess. I don't know. That's the logic I'm applying to it retroactively. But you're, you're probably right. It's more likely that no one's going to win the back-to-back. -back. They're probably going to split it. Yeah. Um, you know, the... What was interesting about the second game out of those three, so the one in the middle is, you know, despite me trying, we recorded the night before that game and I was very, you know, careful about what I said about the Leafs had figured out how to stop Drysaddle McDavid from scoring because I didn't want, you know, other teams to hear. Apparently Calgary must have read my mind or something. Again, I don't actually know, but <laughs> they must have been watching the Leafs uh, because they managed to keep McDavid and Drysaddle both to a single point that game, um, which, you know, for... For them, that's pretty bad. <laughs> that's a bad result. Yeah. It's a so, bad night. you know, when, when those two have a bad night, even if it is a single point night, um, that doesn't bode well for the team. And I, I think that was a factor for sure in the Flames winning that one. Which the Flames obviously promptly forgot the next night, which was <laughs> the secret to shutting down McDavid and Drysdale. I presume the secret is hope they have a really bad evening. That's just, that's the secret. <laughs> That might be more accurate, yeah, and and then hope they don't learn how to counter your counters. I, I heard a quote once, and I, I apologize that I don't remember who it was about, but it was about a like very great player, and someone asked a coach, uh, what's the game plan, or what, what do you think you're going to do to shut the guy down? And the coach just said, I hope he misses the bus to the stadium tonight. <laughs> so I think that's kind of what they, what they think when they hear, how do you shut down McDavid? Well, I hope he doesn't make it here tonight. <laughs> yep. Well, so on that, maybe do you want to go first, talk about the Flames in the past couple weeks? Sure, sure I do. I would love to talk about <laughs> the Flames. Um, so you said that McDavid and Dreisaitl getting one point tonight is just a bad night, and that means the other team has shut them down. At this point, that's a pretty good night for the Flames, getting a whole <laughs> point, you know, getting a goal. That's oof, that's some high rolling. So the Flames' biggest issue lately is scoring. I'm sure we can all agree there. I went on at length at the beginning of the the season about how the flames need to have an, a defensive identity and how they have a really good decor and how they're going to play kind of a slower you know shut them down style 
and that's still true to a degree. Um, when the Flames score three or more goals, they win. They don't. They do not lose when they score three or more goals, um, because they are pretty good defensively still. Even though they're having a rough season, they still have a very good defense core, and they're still like. I say this knowing that they've gotten blown out a number of times, like, you know, seven goals from the Oilers, six from Ottawa, and they've had a number of high scoring games. To me, that doesn't mean their defense is bad. That means that a whole team is having a bad night. But Calgary is capable of shutting teams down where they're really lacking is scoring goals and their defense isn't good enough to uh, overcome a complete lack of goals. Like Calgary isn't winning one nothing, two nothing games. They're winning like four three three two games, which is still good. So Sutter came into a press conference uh, after one of the games, and one thing he said was, "This team doesn't have high end scoring power. We need to learn how to play a tight checking game to win, because we will not get the goals to outpace other teams." And I'm a kind of person that often accepts things at face value right away, but I need to take time to think about it because obviously Daryl Sutter knows a lot more about hockey than I ever will. So it's like, yes, I agree with that man. Cause he knows what he's talking about. But after thinking about it a bit, I don't think I totally agree with him because he said that the Calgary flames don't have high end scoring power. And sure this year and last year, they sure haven't looked like they do. I agree with that, but they might because in 2018 and 2019, Johnny Gaudreau had 99 points, Monahan at 82, Lindholm at 78, Kachuk at 77, Giordano had 74 points and won the Norris Trophy. That was two years ago. So obviously, there's something there. Like that, that might have been a fluke in some ways, but you don't flukily score 99 points. Like <laughs> Gaudreau is obviously a very skilled player. Monahan. As we covered, as I covered last episode, he scores a lot of goals. He has that ability. You know, that just doesn't just disappear from their games. Giordano, I can understand because he's at the sports age where it just gets exponentially harder to keep contributing. So maybe his decline, you know, can be attributed to age, but not Gaudreau and Monaghan or Lindholm or Kachak. You know, those guys still have extreme offensive ability hidden somewhere. So I think the issue is. What's happened to these guys where they had they progressively grew uh, over their first years in the league? They hit 2018, 19, had a great season and then just hit a cliff. Like what happened there? What what changed? Because I think to say that this team doesn't have that kind of skill is disingenuous when they have proven they have had that skill. You know, it's not McDavid or Dreisaitl's insane points numbers, but that's still four offensive players that put up very healthy point totals like that's great if if four guys get over five guys get over 70 points that's amazing i think for a team so i this is my obviously speculation being a guy that sits at home and has no media contact with the flames at all but my thought is maybe there's been too much pressure applied to the top players to learn defense and I think Stu might be blinking rapidly trying to figure out what I'm saying because I think <laughs> Stu knows me as someone that really loves defense and preaching defense. So for me to say, ah, these guys are learning too much defense sounds really <laughs> weird coming from me. But the the focus the last couple of years on Johnny and Sean Monaghan has been, oh, these guys need to get really responsible and defensive and learn this 200-foot game. They need to be complete players. I think we've all heard those statements said about those guys. And to me, it's kind of getting annoying because people are putting all these all this pressure on these two guys to be defensive stalwarts and be like Patrice Bergeron and Crosby and learn the defensive way of the game. And they've just been getting progressively worse on offense. And people are like, well, then they need to learn how to work harder and get their chances on offense. But do they? <laughs> because in 2018-19, these guys shot the lights out and the Flames got second in the league. Like, that seems like a, a proven recipe for success. And the dominant theory at the time was the Flames ran into uh, Colorado in the playoffs and got decimated by the Avalanche. So then the Flames obviously had to change their game to be a good playoff team. But in my mind, looking back... 
why wouldn't they have stuck with what they were doing very well and just refined it, like made it a bit better? I think taking a, a team that got second in the regular season and just scrapping that whole identity and saying, oh, well, that didn't work in the playoffs and starting over and trying to instill defense into these star offensive players maybe wasn't a great idea. Like they were a run and gun score transition, super exciting team that you wanted to go to the dome and watch them like come up with great goals. And now the flames are hard to watch. They're so hard to watch because you're not sure if they're going to get more than one goal in a game and it's dump and chase grinded out. That's not what Johnny Gaudreau's there to do. And the guy's really small. He's never going to be great on defense. Like, I think he already contributes pretty well on defense. I've floated this idea to Stu before that Johnny Gaudreau is really good at transition defense where he can break up plays when he's, you know, coming up behind someone, picking their pocket, getting a stick in the way. But when teams are going to work in their offensive end, Johnny Gaudreau is not going to be the guy grinding along the boards, digging pucks out, obviously, because he's mm-hmm. quite small. So why are they trying to force him to learn this defensive style that, doesn't really suit him and same goes for Sean Monaghan I think Monaghan's done quite well on defense but it's obviously hurting his offense because he's being told to do so much more on defense so what I get out of all of this actually comes from the NFL and that is in the NFL last year there was this movement if you want to call it that and it was called let Russ cook and that referred to the Seattle Seahawks, their star quarterback, Russell Wilson. For years, he had been, you know, handing the ball off a ton. And I'm sorry for the rapid sports switch here, but I promise this makes sense. He'd been handing the ball off a ton. He'd been doing short passes. But he was a very good quarterback that had big play potential. Like he can throw really far. He can run around. He can make huge plays. The team wasn't really letting him do that, even though they knew he could do it. And fans started this movement called Let Russ Cook, where they just repeatedly, you know, on social media, got in the face of the team and said, let the quarterback do his thing. Let him be awesome. Please just let him go. And lo and behold, this year they let Russ Cook and he was putting up monster offensive numbers. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff that also went wrong for the team this year. (laughs) But in terms of his stats and like offensive production, he was going crazy. And, you know, everyone was justified because or I guess validated because, you know, let Russ Cook actually worked. And I think I kind of want to start that with the Flames with let Johnny Cook. Don't don't force him down into the defensive zone. Don't spend practice being like Johnny. Oh, my goodness. You're doing defense all wrong. This guy electrified all Flames fans for the first five years he was here. He put butts in seats quite literally. When you go to the game, it was so fun to watch him play. And now it's hard to watch. And my theory is that they're just piling the defensive responsibilities on these top guys when in reality, I don't think they need to do that. That's why they have guys like Michael Backlund and Andrew Manjapani. Sure, they might be underappreciated, but they're excellent forward defenders. And I think they need to basically shelter Gaudreau and Monaghan say, okay, you guys have the offensive keys again go nuts. I won't bother you too much about defense again because we need you guys to score. So that's that's my uh, fan view into what you could do to fix the Flames offense. What do you think, Stu? Do you think I'm way off base or would that make a difference? No, I I love everything about what you just said. Uh, even, you know, as an Oilers fan who's been griping about, you know, we need to get better defensively and you know, actually I'll be talking a little bit about McDavid in that regards in a little bit, but no, I think that's exactly right. As much as, yeah, people, you know, all players need to be able to play the full rink. They need to play the full length of the game. You know, you still need to be able to play your game. You need to be able to play your style. And I just have one tweak to your uh, suggestion. Instead of let Johnny cook, I think it should be let Johnny be good. (laughs) <laughs> that is much better yes so uh i I've, i'm totally down for uh starting this campaign of let johnny be good so heck yeah hashtag sutter bump might already be over but let johnny be good i am all on board with that uh, the oilers uh, this past couple weeks um have uh you know they're as we've already discussed they've played really well in the month of march they have a good record um they've 
as of tonight, uh, the time that we're recording this, they've finally finished the, la- the last of their games against Toronto. So, you know, that's they've lost that series six to three. We can finally move on from that. But let's face it, if anybody wants to win the North Division's playoffs, and whether that's the Oilers or Calgary or Winnipeg or whoever, they're going to have to handle the Leafs. So, you know, luckily it appears that 0-3 stretch at the end of February, beginning of March, where the Leafs outscored the Oilers 13-1 to was just a bad dip because these last two games was split uh, with both games going to overtime. So, you know that's better <laughs> definitely than 0 and three. Now I'm not saying if the Oilers face the Leafs in the playoffs, it'll be easy, but hopefully if that time comes, they'll remember what they were doing recently and remember the lessons they learned from that awful stretch against them earlier. So wanted to get that out of the way. Cause I know I talked about, you know, losing to the Leafs last episode and, you know, wanted to uh, ease ourselves. Okay. That's over with, we can move on to some other teams uh, hopefully that'll be better results, not having to play Toronto as much. But the other thing I wanted to talk about is, uh, is McDavid off the rush. So, uh, and credit to Jay fresh hockey for pulling these numbers together. Um, but for the last three seasons, the majority, and we're talking like 59 to 68% of Connor McDavid's five on five goals were scored off the rush. And really, that's absolutely no surprise. His top speed would be illegal on some city streets. So why wouldn't you? This year, that number is down to 40%. And this is in contrast to Dreisaitl, who's also been very similar. He scored about 59% of his goals this way over the past two seasons. And he's actually up to 75% this year. So he's scoring tons off the rush. But McDavid is down 40 to 40%. So... Why is that? This obviously doesn't mean that scoring has dropped, you know, quite the contrary. He's on pace for what would have been a 50 goal season over a full 82 games this year. But what it does mean, and this comes back to what you were talking about with, you know, trying to be more defensive, making these offensive players try to be more defensive. I think this has been a good way to that. He's been able to adapt his game to a more defensively minded not necessarily a more defensive strategy, but a more defensively minded possession dominating strategy. So think of it this way. And yes, I'm definitely going to oversimplify it here to illustrate, but (laughs) it takes Connor McDavid, let's say six seconds to take the puck from the Oilers goal line to the other end of the ice and put it in the back of the net. And that that's not an exaggeration. That's just science i don't know how it's like miraculous ungodly science but it's science (laughs) six seconds to get down there so if he does that once every period scores three goals gets a hat trick in the night great but that leaves 59 minutes and 42 seconds for the opposing (laughs) team to be on the attack right yes and again that's an oversimplification they're obviously not attacking the whole time but you just can't be scoring all the time when your goals take six seconds, (laughs) but neither can the other team if you have the puck. So now this has not broken Connor McDavid again, see stats for his season that I just quoted above. And, you know, of course he's still going to score the odd six second end to end beauty that the Oilers fans love, but he's also learned to slow down his game where necessary to play the smart moves and keep the puck on an oiler stick if it doesn't go in right away. Again, I, you know, I, I do want to emphasize because this is in contrast to what you were talking about just a few minutes ago. They're not, we're not trying to pigeonhole Connor McDavid into something he's not. It's about, you know, taking that time to just breathe a little bit, maintain the puck, hold on to it because as long as you have it, yeah, you might not be scoring as quickly, but the other team is not scoring as if you have the puck. Now, I'm not saying you just hang onto the puck and play do do and keep away for 60 minutes. Yeah, you still got to be scoring. And don't worry, Conrick David, Dreisaitl, <laughs> of, you know, they've still got that down. But I think this is uh, an interesting reflection of, of how Conor McDavid has improved his game this year. And 
I think it's it's made a difference into allowing others to rack up their points as well, uh, as we've talked about in previous episodes, and allowing the team as a whole to get better at um, maintaining leads and not losing so so many games as in prior seasons. Will it continue? Who knows? Yeah, we talked a lot about the Oilers needed to get more defensive, or at least I did, about, you know, the Oilers can score, but they don't really defend. But I think this is also a, a solution to that problem. Uh, you know, it's one that I never thought about is yeah, Connor McDavid's obviously a generational talent and so offensively talented. So why not get him to just essentially kill a little bit of time? I mean, we know that he can score, but I think you're right. You've outlined the benefits of having him basically just control possession. Possession is obviously a huge mm-hmm. part of you know analytics and, and data that teams take into account when going over game plans. So if, if Connor McDavid can hold possession of the puck for a while and then score, well, then you've burned some time off the clock and you've got a goal. So you're right. That is such a, you know, a potent method and it's really not changing his game all that much really to get it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, personally, I know very little about, you know, advanced stats and analytics and all that stuff. But as you just mentioned, one thing I do know is possession is a very key component of a lot of those advanced stats. So yeah, I think it's valuable for sure. Now it is time for sellies and scorns. Uh, spoiler alert, Stu and I had two scorns each and both of them <laughs> were the same. So if you haven't guessed by now what each of them are, I don't know what to tell you. So Stu, would you like to lead us off with one of them? Sure. So I will lead us off with the scorn because uh, Darren teased it oh so well. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure if any of you listening pay at any attention to hockey at all you're probably surprised we haven't even talked about this yet but uh, this is uh, my scorn is for how the nhl handled the situation of the referee controversy i feel like we need a gate here this needs to be a, a ref gate or something peel gate peel gate yeah <laughs> peel gate could work so again for those of you who I guess only listen to this podcast for all of your hockey news. First off, I apologize. I can't believe that would be any of the case. Um, But, and I, I'm going to try and summarize this without any of my notes because I didn't actually take any, but uh, one of the very, very veteran referees uh, of the NHL, Tim Peel was refereeing a game and caught on mic uh, discussing with a another ref. We don't actually know who the other voice was, but we presume he was discussing with another ref the fact that basically he knew that a penalty he was calling or had called in the previous period was a very weak call, but he wanted to make it because he was l- basically looking for an opportunity to call a penalty on them. Did I summarize that appropriately yes yeah and it was to another referee that he was talking yeah yeah so he said you know i i i know this was pretty bad uh it was a pretty weak call but you know i was looking for an opportunity to call that was a paraphrase of what he actually said so the scorn is actually not on tim peel as much as many hockey fans have come out before and after this <laughs> describing how much they despise Tim Peel. <laughs> My scorn is not at all for him. My scorn is for the NHL because most hockey fans, or at least those who watch a lot of hockey and pay attention to how the game works, they know that NHL referees do a very different job than, for example, the IHF referees. IHF referees call every penalty that they see because it's an infraction upon the rules of the game. That's what you would think the definition of a referee should be, right? (laughs) That's the the job description. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. NHL referees don't do that. NHL referees manage the game. And what that means is they try to ensure that the game is possibly more balanced than a straightforward ref would call it. And 
by that I mean they do they try to make a number of calls equal to each team. They try to uh, penalize winning teams a little bit more to bring the you know to try and even up the game a little bit. There's a variety of reasons that refs that the um, I, I want to say that the NHL would do this, but the NHL spoiler alert says they don't do this, but they definitely <laughs> wow. do. Who knew? Uh, there's a variety of reasons that this would be done, you know, to keep the game more competitive, more exciting for mainstream audiences, yada, yada, yada. Like it or not, this is how the NHL works. The problem is the NHL has never and still will not admit that this is how the game works. So what they did is basically put out an announcement saying that, and again, I'm paraphrasing this guy is completely off basis. He should never have done this. And he's never going to ref for the NHL again. Now, one thing to be clear is this guy wasn't actually fired. A lot of people are like, oh, yeah, Tim Peel was fired. Tim Peel was fired. He wasn't actually. Uh, he was retiring at the end of this year. He's still being paid for this season. He's still going to receive his full benefits. He's just not allowed to ref any more of the games remaining this year. So this is not really a punishment to him. This is the NHL basically just saying, oh my goodness, we're so offended that refs would actually think this way, but they're not actually, and they're not admitting to the fact that this is how the NHL operates. I think we the NHL just needs to either just admit it or change. Again, like it or not, they do manage the games then just admit, yeah, okay, this is, we, we manage games. This is what the league does. I, I would be okay with that. If the NHL was more open about it, I would be much more okay with that. I would much prefer they just say, okay, no, we're actually going to just call games straight, <laughs> but they're not going to do that either. <laughs> so, you know, I think to use a crass saying, they either need to crap or get off the pot, <laughs> <laughs> right? They, they need to, you know, admit that they're managing games or they need to change their method of doing things. The way that they handle this was basically just fake outrage that a ref would actually think this way and operate this way and not actually punish him in any way. And I'm glad they didn't actually punish him because he would be, you know, a very much a scapegoat of what they tell them to do implicitly, if not explicitly. So that was a very long uh, scorn. I apologize, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the NHL really bungled that. And, um, they, yeah, I think, I think as fans, we need to, I, as much as this is like two weeks old now, and it's probably getting annoying for some people, I think as fans, we need to keep this conversation going because the NHL needs to listen and go one way or the other here. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Obviously, if you think it's all done, you know, Tim Peel's fired, dust off your hands. Well, that's all done for. That's good. Well, that's not the case. You know, there's there's lots of stats out there showing, uh, you know, penalty differential that refs call. And Tim Peel definitely wasn't the worst offender, if you want to call it that. So you're completely right. This is an NHL thing. And if we just let it drop, then they're going to get what they want. And they're just going to keep doing it, which uh, the game management isn't the worst thing ever. But it is something that isn't necessary for the game, I don't think. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I totally agree with you. Now, <clears throat> the other the other scorn, which I'm sure everybody's guessed by now, if you haven't, I'll give you a few seconds. Just think, what is so bad in the NHL that needs to be made? <laughs> You're right, it's the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah, I didn't think of that. <clears throat> it's the Buffalo Sabres. So, Buffalo. They have lost their last 17 games. Obviously, they fired their head coach in the middle there just, you know, to feel like they're doing something, try to try to get something going. That didn't help at all. Uh, their star player, Jack Eichel, is injured. Uh, he only had two goals on the season, which matches the total of Taylor Hall, who was their big offseason signing he was the big prize free agent he also only has two goals um if you would have guessed before the season that milan lucic would have more goals than jack eichel and taylor hall combined <laughs> you would have been laughed out of whatever room you were in but that is in fact the case uh 
Milan Lucic has double the goals of Jack Eichel and Taylor all combined. <laughs> so that's pretty rough. Um, the Buffalo Sabres record is currently, and wait for this because this record sounds like they belong in the NBA at the bottom of the NBA. They are 6-23-4 and four this season. That is that is hard to believe. Uh, they've got five players who are at least minus 20 on the year already. Remember, we're only 30-some-odd games into the year, and there's five players who are minus 20. Rasmus Dahlin, their star young defenseman, is minus 32. That is all the things that are going wrong for Buffalo this year. And, you know, this is a team that should have been better. I think they're in a tough spot because they're in a very good division with, you know, Pittsburgh and Washington and Philadelphia and Boston. That's, that is brutal. That is a hard division, but still to be six twenty three and four is really bad. And here's the thing, Buffalo. I don't know if you're going to get much of a saving grace this year because the draft is going to be rough too, because scouting is very difficult what with you know COVID and minor leagues being much more restricted than the NHL has been, you know scouts are going to have a hard time assessing players. So Buffalo is going to get a very high draft pick, most likely first. But this is the year where you don't necessarily want to have high draft picks, and you shouldn't pin all your hopes on the draft. So as bad as they are, things just aren't looking up for them. It's It's been an all-around brutal year for the Buffalo Sabres. I, I feel like this scorn won't really register on their scale of pain, so I don't feel too bad in, in <laughs> subjecting them to this personally. Yeah, uh, I've just got three quick things to add. First off, if Buffalo's luck keeps up the way it is, they are not going to get first overall in that draft. <laughs> That's very true. That's a good point. Um, another thing is that just to sort of illustrate how bad they've been, not only this season, but, you know, they've been bad for a while. Uh, <laughs> another one of their big signs was was Jeff Skinner. <laughs> oh, no. And, uh, They've played a hundred games since they signed this big superstar question mark. And they've won 36 of those games. So if you sign someone thinking they're going to be your savior and then you go win a third of those games since signing that guy, that's, that's not going to work out. He's not the only problem in Buffalo, (laughs) but uh, that's one of them for sure. And the other thing uh, is that, uh, and we should also say that COVID has been a factor for Buffalo. It has not been a factor for really any of the Canadian teams, hardly at all. Uh, but it has been a factor for many of the American teams. And Buffalo, you know, has definitely been hit by it. But, uh, you know, again, that's a pretty bad record no matter what is going through your dressing room. Uh, but my favorite part is uh, Eric Stahl, who was recently traded away from Buffalo, was asked what went wrong with Buffalo. And his answer is, and I quote, the good part for me is I don't have to try and explain. I can leave that behind me. You never, you would never hear a hockey player say something that honest. So how bad must it be for a a good old Canadian boy with polite upbringing to say something like that? That is one step away from not my effing problem anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And I would like to follow up on the Jeff Skinner thing. Jeff Skinner makes $9 million ostensibly until the end of time to play for the Buffalo Sabres. And he has four points this year. Uh, Big shout out to the unnamed fan who was so down in the dumps after one Flames loss that he suggested we trade for Jeff Skinner. Big, big shout out there, buddy. Uh, (laughs) I I know flames the flames are rough but I I think we can leave Jeff Skinner where he belongs and that is Buffalo. Well, should we uh bring the mood back up a little bit? Yeah. Well, yeah, although well, kicking for- Buffalo while they're down does make <laughs> us feel better, so that does make me feel better better about the flames. But what what do you have for Sellies do? Uh, my Sully is a real quick one. It's it's actually for Tyson Berry and how he's been playing uh, for the Oilers as of late. Uh, in the last four games, although not including tonight's game as of recording, but he did take a 
skate to the face tonight. Uh, thankfully, nothing serious came of that, but you know, that's worth mentioning. Hey, you can take a skate to the face and you're still kicking. Okay, kicking might not have been the word used there, but anyways, moving on. Uh, in the past four games, he's had eight points and a plus eight. Uh, this includes four points and a plus two in the last Battle of Alberta game and two points and a plus three against his former team of the Maple Leafs, who we've already discussed are a challenge to play against for the Oilers. So, yeah, he's done really well of, as of late. Um, he took a little bit less money to to come to Edmonton so that he could reinvent himself on this short-term deal. He really took a chance on himself to make that work and and, uh, you know, Holland took a chance on him as well. And uh, I think he's really proved that he's been worth it. So uh, I hope that continues. And uh, I hope, uh, yeah, we can we can keep him around. Yeah, good for him, I guess. If I have to be happy for an oiler, I guess. <laughs> great, great for Tyson Berry. <laughs> but it is it is good to see when players, you know, take that risk, the one-year risk, and uh, it goes their way, unlike Taylor mm-hmm. Hall of the Buffalo Sabres. But uh <laughs> No, that's good for Tyson Berry, the person. Um, my Selly is a little bit random, but it was a little bit of a heartwarming story that I read on The Athletic. Um, so to, to start this off, when Alex Lafren- Lafreniere, that's a that's a bit of a tongue twister for me, but when Alex Lafreniere got drafted first overall last summer, his his mother actually asked the Rangers, which is who drafted him, if they could put the correct accent on his jersey. That was one of her first points of order when, you know, she talked to the team. She said, can you please make sure his name's spelled correctly? He's French. He has a little accent over one of the E's in his name. And they said, can you please make sure that happens? And the Rangers are like, oh, yeah, totally. Which doesn't sound like much. But, you know, this never happens because... NHL players don't have accents or umlauts, um, umlauts or anything on their jerseys. It's just a standard English name, which, you know, may not sound like much to those of us that have very standard English names. But when you think about it, it's kind of like leaving out a letter or, you know, and even that happens sometimes when lots of players come over from Europe, they have to change their names around and make it more English, which I think isn't really all that fair. Sure, they're playing over here, but your last name is your last name. You don't really want to change it. So Alex Lafreniere, man, that's oh, that's a hard one to say. But he, he got his accent over his E. And it started kind of a domino effect in the league where next up was Tim Stutzla of Ottawa. He's German and he has an umlaut over the U in his name. And initially his his uh, jersey was – his name was spelt in a much more English way. His name was actually spelt differently to account for the lack of an umlaut to help people pronounce it. And then eventually the Ottawa general manager, Pierre Dorian, came over and said, hey, do you want the German spelling of your name on your jersey? And obviously Stutzlow was like, oh, absolutely, I would love that. So they changed the spelling. They included the umlaut, which is just two tiny dots. I don't imagine it's that hard to put onto a, a jersey. <laughs> and likewise, Nils uh, Hoaglander in, in uh, Vancouver started out you know, without that umlaut over the O in his name. And actually, this in this case, it was more of a social media movement where every time um, Canucks social media posted something, they actually had the correct spelling of his name. They had the umlaut in all social media posts and rosters and everything like that, but just not on his jersey. So all the fans were typing in the comments, Give him his umlaut. Give Hoglander his umlaut. Like that was their thing for a while. Just put it on his jersey. And eventually the Canucks did just that. They asked him if that's what he'd like. And he said, absolutely, I would love that. So it's kind of weird that the NHL didn't have that up to this point. Like they figured, ah, it's we don't need those accents or whatever. You know, it it can't be that hard to put them on there. You're already putting a whole nameplate on. But I'm thankful that they've switched it around it must be i know it's not probably not even a big deal to the players that change their names but it must be just a nice little consolation to know that you can spell your name how it's spelled you don't have to think about you know changing your name making it more anglicized just keep your name how it is and i like that the nhl is doing that it's a nice little touch that might have taken a bit too long to institute but it's here now and that is a good thing 
And props to Darren for picking a celly that required him to say all of those names that are like <laughs> as as described, not exactly anglicized. So good job on <laughs> yeah. tackling that one. I would have never even tried. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Alex Lafreniere. Oh man, the fr dude. It's like I was. I'm not even joking. I'm just messing it up every time. But yes. I, I mostly got through that mistake free ish. <laughs> All right. Well, now's the part of the show where we try to predict what'll happen next. And as discussed earlier, we're so good at this part. We have double-counted all the games. <laughs> we think we might have the right number. We might have the right starting point this time. Who knows? Uh, we'll find out next month when we try to do some math and realize they don't add up. But anyways, let's start with the uh, Flames this time around, shall we? All right. So we're not including the last couple of games in March uh, that are happening tonight and i believe tomorrow um just because those are probably already happened by the time this episode comes out so we're really only looking at the month of april uh so in the month of april the flames have 14 games so for those who are you know not paying attention to hockey this year but know hockey really well in prior years that seems a little odd because usually there's like three games left by the time april rolls around <laughs> As you know, this season was shortened. Uh, it started late, but the the combination of shortening it and starting late still meant that it actually will end a bit later too. So we are going a little bit into May this year. So we get some springtime hockey, even for those teams that won't make the playoffs. Uh, but yes, for the month of April, Flames have 14 games. So Darren, how many do you think the Flames are going to win out of that? Well, when we started this podcast, uh, currently, as we record, the Flames are playing the Jets. And when I looked near the beginning of the podcast, they were up one nothing. Uh, I just checked now while Stu was doing the intro and they're down 3-1. So I think I might want to drop them a few <laughs> pegs. But uh, I have the Flames predicted at 7-7, seven and seven, which would uh, put them out of the playoffs. Uh, I, I obviously don't think the Flames are going to make the playoffs. It'd be a very uphill battle at this point, requiring them to win a lot of games. And the hashtag Sutter Bump hasn't held up. It was pretty short. Uh, it was only that four games, and the Flames kind of sunk back to their old inconsistencies. So while I think Sutter does have them playing with more emotion on average than they were before, it's certainly... Not anywhere close to what I think fans were hoping for. It's not the huge push that we were hoping we're going to get them into the playoffs. So I'm looking at a, a 500 record here to round out April. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I am slightly more pessimistic, but not by much. I have them winning six out of the 14. I would agree that the Sutter bump lasted uh, but it did not last as long as the various COVID bumps. Maybe they flattened the curve too much on that one. Uh, so unfortunately, yeah, Sutter has not been able to keep them going at that same pace. So it just, uh, yeah, I totally agree. It, it does not look good for their for their spring prospects. On a less pessimistic side, at least for you, what do you think of the Oilers? I think the Oilers are doing really well. I think it bodes very well that they don't have Leafs games left. <laughs> uh, I think they're, you know, they play really well against most of the other teams. They've won their last two against the Jets. Uh, the Flames, obviously, they're splitting a lot with, but who knows how that'll turn into down the stretch. The one wild card for me on the Oilers schedule is the Habs because they've only played them three times. And it's been a while. Uh, they lost two very, very early in the season and won one in February. Uh, but we've got quite a few games up against the Habs coming up. So I, that was kind of where I was at a loss as to what might happen, but I took a stab at anyways. All this to say, I think they're doing really well. So I think they're going to win eight out of their 13 games this month. Well, Stu, I apparently have all the same feelings as you because I also have them pegged at winning eight out of their 13 games this month. 
Um, yeah, you're, <laughs> I mean, I had mostly everything the same as you. They, they're finally done with Toronto, which is big, and they still have some games left against Ottawa, which they absolutely <laughs> prey upon. So uh, I don't think it's much of a stretch to put them over 500. So yeah, 8 out of 13 for me as well. Yeah, and of course, uh, as is like almost impossible to avoid this year, there are two Battle of Alberta games in the month of April. Uh, one right at the beginning of the month, April 2nd, and one right at the end, April 29th. So what do you think is going to happen with those? To put it bluntly, I think the Oilers are going to win them. <laughs> I just, I, you know, the Oilers are playing much better than the Flames. And the Flames haven't had much jump. And when they, when the Flames face teams better than them, they fold pretty hard. So, unfortunately, I just don't see them winning either. I think by that point, they'll probably be out of the playoffs, almost certainly. So, yeah, to me, it's just an Oilers win for both, plain and simple. Yeah, I, I definitely see where you're coming from there. I do think the Flames are going to come back hard on this upcoming game because... Uh, they don't like the, you know, being embarrassed on a seven, three loss. So I, I think they're going to come fighting on that game and win that one. Uh, but yeah, by the time the end of April runs around, they will have forgotten that and they will, yeah, probably not be in a playoff spot race anymore. So the Oilers are probably going to win that one quite easily, I think. But yeah, I think they're going to split it overall though. I can tell you haven't watched too many Flames games by the way you think the Flames take, you know, any any offense at being blown out. I'm pretty sure <laughs> they tend to roll over more than they uh, get up for games. But we will see. I will accept a Flames win over the Oilers any day. Yeah, well, you know, the Oilers are different, right? They can't just... They, they might be okay with being embarrassed by Ottawa multiple times in a row, but not the Oilers. That's That's just not cool for Calgary people, right? Yeah, maybe we'll get Daryl Sutter kicking some garbage cans or something to make sure that doesn't happen. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening once again. Please make sure to rate, like, and subscribe to our podcast to get us a few more listeners. That would be excellent. We'll hopefully be back in a couple of weeks with our mid-month checkup on our predictions and a look in to see... How our favorite teams are doing. Will the Flames survive? Probably not, but we'll come back and find out. So have a great couple of weeks, everyone, and we'll see you later.